This is the Generations Radio Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you today. Adam McManus, the host of theworldviewandgood.com, also with me on this edition of the program. And today we want to dedicate a special program to England, which happens to be the mother country of the United States of America, and certainly the bastion of Western Christianity for at least a thousand years. Uh, Certainly, uh, Western Christianity had its base in England for so long, and the Reformation in England ultimately led to the establishment of the United States of America, and so much of the worldwide influence of the Christian faith came from, well, England, Scotland, Great Britain, and America. So we're thankful for what God has done, and you can read the story of the rise and fall of the West in my new book, Epoch, uh, available now at generations.org. Now, the funeral of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, husband of Queen Elizabeth, occurred just last week, and I think this was remarkable. Now, you witnessed some of this by video, Adam. I did. It was something to see the four-member chamber choir sing the song that he had especially requested that they sing at his funeral based on Psalm 104. They had sung that for him at his 75th birthday, and he apparently Mm -hmm. was so moved by it that he wanted that sung at his funeral as well. We played a clip of it on The Worldview, which was uh, quite moving. In fact, if you go several days ago now to our Mm -hmm. theworldview.com website, we have a link to the actual five-minute video of that presentation of Psalm 104 to music, which was specifically written just for the Duke. The funeral for Prince Philip involved uh, tons of scripture, lots and lots of hymns, and friends, this, of course, demonstrates to us the remnants of Christian culture, the remnants of the faith, and indeed, the Christian faith has been embedded into the world, embedded into Western culture for over a thousand years. No question that Jesus Christ has had an impact upon the world It has been cosmic. It has been nuclear. It has been something that must not be denied, but should be talked about and and celebrated and acknowledged. And that's what I do in Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West. We must give our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ due recognition for all that he's done. And we do that with uh, preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. We do it in all of our history courses. But uh, encourage you especially to Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West, to, to understand the sheer amazing world-changing influence of Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years. The rise of Christianity in the Western world was epochal. It was it was spectacular. And, and there will be nothing like it that could overwhelm the influence of it. I don't think the world will ever be the same because of the influence of Christ upon the entire Western world over 2,000 years. But uh, we see here, I think, with the funeral of Prince Philip and the reign of Elizabeth II, something of a continuation of Christian culture. And I think we should be thankful for it. I think we should acknowledge it. I think we should give Jesus due recognition for the um, amazing impact, the impress he has had upon so much of Western culture. Let me quote from that Psalm 104 passage where it was put to music. My soul gives praise unto the Lord of heaven in majesty and honor clothed. The earth he made will not be moved the seas he made to be its robe, give praise. I mean, that's about as foundational of an acknowledgement of Christian heritage and gratitude toward God as it gets. 
Where did it all begin, friends, for England? It began with Athelstan. That is the first king of England, was Athelstan. In the 10th century, that would have been 900s, Athelstan completely obliterated idolatry. All worship of false gods in England in the 900s back it up to his grandfather, Alfred. His grandfather, Alfred, would have been the root of it. Now, Alfred technically was not the first king of England. Athelstan was the first king of England. Read all about it in Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West. But this is one of the most interesting stories in all of human history. So you just need to brush up on what Athelstan did in really ultimately collecting all of the the kings uh, of England, that whole area, all the way up into Scotland under one particular control, that is, eliminating all of the false religions and bringing a distinctively Christian law code upon the land of England. In fact, it was Alfred's law code that became the basis for common law. Winston Churchill refers to that in his history of the English-speaking people. It was King Alfred that is the source of common law in England, ultimately the source of Christian culture in this part of the world. You need to read the story. You need to give Jesus due recognition for what he accomplished through Alfred. Alfred, by the way, kept his own handwritten collection of the Psalms of David with him all the time. He read it day and night. It was basic for him. Later in life, he would seek out other passages of Scripture. He was always translating Scripture into the English language. So Alfred himself was the first to translate large portions into the English language. Bede had done a little bit before him, but Alfred did tremendous work in translating the Word of God into the English language. And he said of him, in fact, he acknowledges this of himself in his writings, like a busy bee, he wandered far and wide over the marshes in his quest, eagerly and relentlessly assembling many various flowers of Holy Scripture with which he crammed full the cells of his own heart. Now, first and foremost, Alfred submitted the sovereignty of God. He wrote a lot of neat poetry, some of which is contained in my new book, The Rise and Fall of the West. I uh, spoke of the sovereignty of the true and living God. One, only one, made all the heavens and earth. Doubtless to him, all beings owe their birth, and guided by his care are all who therein dwell unseen of us. And these whom we can look at, living thus in land and sea and air, he is almighty, him all things obey, that in such bondage know how blessed are they who have so good a king as the Lord God of heaven. So, friends, also, of course, he was the first to bring that law code to bear that became the basis for the common law of England, as uh, referenced by Winston Churchill in his history of the English-speaking peoples. And do understand that King Alfred's law code contained in my book, Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West. I have the entire beginning of it and uh, large sections of it included in the book. But uh, he references Exodus 20, Exodus 21, Exodus 22, provides for scripture verses for each of the laws that he encoded for the English peoples. And that would have been in AD 849, the beginning of the influence of Christian law in Christian culture in the Western world, you need to know the heritage of Alfred, Athelstan, and others, and these have influenced all the kings and queens of England all the way down to Victoria and Elizabeth II. We're going to share more on Elizabeth II next on the Generations Broadcast. Attention, homeschool parents. Here at Generations, we know that finding literature curriculum that engages your children's minds and helps them develop a strong Christian worldview can be an overwhelming task. That's why we've developed a Christian discipleship-focused literature curriculum that's centered around the most important work of literature ever written, the Word of God. Not only do our Bible-centric courses seek to place Christ at the head of literature studies, 
but they will also teach your children how to analyze all literature from a Christian perspective, enabling them to be more than conquerors in today's battle of worldviews. By introducing them to the essential stories of the faith, along with the written works of history's best Christian authors, our literature curriculum provides the bedrock for a firm foundation of faith in the hearts of your children. So, get started today with Generations Christian Discipleship Curriculum and watch your children embark on an incredible journey towards strengthening their faith and discovering the greatest Christian stories ever told. You can learn more and browse our selection of carefully curated works at generations.org slash curriculum. That's generations.org slash curriculum. And we are back on the Generations Broadcast. This is Kevin Swanson, also Adam McManus, host of theworldview.com, with us on this segment of the program. And today we're acknowledging the sovereign grace of God, the common grace of God, in the fact that uh, the Lord, by His grace and by His mercy, preserves societies, cultures, over a period of hundreds of years, over a period of at least a thousand years. And this is what we see. I, I think we need to be grateful for the good things that we enjoy in Christian culture in the Western world. I think if we acknowledge the good stuff, then we start with a spirit of gratefulness. And even as we are somewhat concerned with the direction of the Western world, we should still be thankful for what has been accomplished and what God has done for us. The glass is 90% full, or the glass is 99% full, or the glass is 99.9% full. We don't sit around talking about the 0.1% empty all the time. We must begin with the good things that God has given to us. And there is a point at which I think we need to thank God for Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, who, by the way, died at 99 years of age. Queen Elizabeth is 95 years of age. It's extraordinary. God has given these civil leaders in England many years of life on earth, and I think this is his common grace. This is God's grace on them and on us. And she just beat out Queen Victoria as the longest-living monarch. So there is certainly a, a, a rich tradition of both good genes and God's blessing. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact that Elizabeth II continues to reign and bears some influence upon England, and make no mistake about it, I think Americans are somewhat influenced as well by the Queen. I think she has an influence upon the entire world still by the common grace of God. It's extraordinary why this happens, but I think she has been something of a preserving element to culture, to civilization, and we need to be thankful for this, especially in an age in which so much is disintegrating all around us. Entire socioeconomic systems are collapsing all around us right now, yet there has been something of a conservative culture maintained by the monarchy in England, and in my visits to Australia and New Zealand, I can't help but think there has been something of a preserving element to these cultures because of the Queen of England. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for this element of common grace that God has given to the entire world, especially the Western world. And I want to distinguish, Adam, for a moment between conservative culture and true heart faith. Okay. I think it's important to maintain that distinction. It is important to maintain that distinction because there is a tendency, especially post-Trump and during Trump, to conflate the two, to equate conservatism with Christianity or Christianity with conservatism. Surely, for example, a Christian is going to be pro-life because God says he created us in 
the inmost depths of our mother's womb in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. So it naturally flows that a Bible-believing, Christ-following Christian would be pro-life. But there's a lot of murkiness when you use the word conservatism. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. When you talk about Christianity, it's very specifically defined in the Bible, and we need to acknowledge they don't necessarily share entire common ground. There is, there is an intersection there, but not totally. I don't particularly like to refer to myself as a conservative, uh, largely because conservatives don't repent. <laughs> I think that's the main problem. They, they tend not to want to repent because they're trying to conserve something that they have retained for generations. Now, again, I'm trying to distinguish between two things here, conservative culture and true heart faith in Jesus Christ. That is, to be a Christian is not necessarily to be conservative. To be conservative is not necessarily to be a Christian. Conservative culture, though, has the ability to preserve humanity to some extent. There is, within conservatism, something of a gut feel where you need to honor those who've gone before you. There is something of an honor for fathers and mothers. And by the way, the fifth commandment ties in here as well, that those who do honor fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, they will live long upon the earth. This is what we call the cultural command. So to the extent that there is an honor for the cultural systems and the wisdom of previous generations, whether it be in art, music, science, literature, et cetera, et cetera, where there is a desire to honor those who have gone before us, there is usually something of a preservation of society. And it may be that Queen Elizabeth and uh, Prince Philip were honoring to those generations who gone before them. And, and that, of course, constitutes something of that conservatism. And the Fifth Commandment ties in. They shall live long upon the earth. And we have seen something like this happening with Elizabeth II and uh, Prince Philip. So conservative culture can preserve humanity. It conserves a public morality and protects a society from instant self-immolation. This is what we call common grace. Conservative morals, conservative culture does not mean that there is a true Christian faith at heart. Often those who preserve public morals are religious hypocrites, and there's no real true heart faith involved there, yet there is still a preserving element to keep the evil that men can do at bay. And, and that's why I appreciate so much what has happened with Queen Elizabeth II over, what, these 70 years. As you mentioned already, I think she is now the longest living monarch in the history of England. She just beat out Queen Victoria, who at one point was the longest reigning monarch. I think Queen Victoria made it to 67 years, if I'm not mistaken. But now Queen Elizabeth II approaching 70 years on the throne in England. Now, she's been something of a blessing to the world. There's been a symbolic conservatism about the Brits, largely because of this monarchy. Now, it's not to say that she's perfect in her policies. She has been silent on her position on abortion, it turns out. It turns out Meghan Markle has also been somewhat vocal about her pro-abortion stance, and evidently the, the monarchy in England uh, has done their best to silence Meghan on that particular issue. Now, I know there's been other controversies going on, but when it comes to abortion, the Queen has been somewhat silent on her position on abortion. She's been opposed to homosexual marriage, yet eventually she went ahead and gave her official approval to it in 2013. And, you know, the, the monarchy itself has set a pretty rough trajectory. 
One of her cousins came out as homosexual in 2016, becoming the first member of the royal family to publicly identify as a homosexual. There have been others in the history of the monarchy that were something of uh, quiet homosexuals. They weren't out of the closet, but we're starting to see some of this. Prince Charles has had his problems with adultery. As many people know, it set a bad direction for his sons. Prince William, Prince Harry have had their issues, and they are both outspoken advocates of homosexuality themselves. So we're certainly seeing a bad trajectory for the family at this point. This was a surprise to me until I learned about your research about Lord Ivar Mountbatten, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. This is a cousin of Queen Elizabeth II. He was not a bachelor and then embraced homosexuality in his college years or high school years. This man was married in 1994 to a woman, had three daughters. The marriage lasted till 2011. Then, while he was separated, he met on a vacation to a ski resort, met an airline cabin services director named James Coyle, and they got married in a private ceremony, the two homosexual men, September 22nd, 2018. What made matters even worse Lord Mountbatten's former wife walked him down the aisle and, quote-unquote, gave him away at the suggestion of their children. Talk about moral confusion. What was Queen Elizabeth II's take on that particular marriage, Kevin? I think she's been pretty silent about the issue, not wanting to create controversy on these things. But again, it appears that the generations are going sour. Not the first time that's happened. Henry VIII was very bad. I believe he had a very bad influence upon the morality of England and the entire Western world. You can read about that in my book, Epoch, The Rise and Fall of the West. King Charles II, James II, very bad. They persecuted Christians. Thousands died horrible deaths because of King Charles II. James II's persecution of the Covenanters, and of course, King Charles II and James II were the source of the slave trading industry in North America. They, they were the first to bring thousands over, and they monopolized the slave trade business in the 1660s, 1670s. So King Charles II, King James II, very bad people. But Queen Victoria of the 19th century, in many ways a breath of fresh air. And I think she came after the evangelical revivals of the early 1800s, and there she is reigning for some 70 years, or close to 70 years, and uh, she gave her name to an era of British greatness, especially across the uh, British Empire. She was an iconic symbol of the nation, the empire, and proper restrained behavior. This was the era in which the first pro-life laws come about. You can read that, of course, in my book, Epoch, The Rise and Fall of the West. And, of course, homosexuality was set at bay, uh, largely due to the influence of Queen Victoria. So Queen Victoria was a conservative woman who rejected the wild hijinks of previous monarchs and set a tone of moral earnestness and straight-laced propriety, which characterized the Victorian age. So I would say that both Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth were moral conservatives, maintaining a conservatism about England, and together they gave England and the entire Western world something like 180 years of some degree of conservatism. We need to be thankful for the sheer number of years God delayed cultural suicide for England and America. Now it's over. Oh no. Uh, it's over. Prince Charles et al. are a mess. And 
the rest is history. Yeah, we've aborted, you know, half the population and all the rest that's happened over the last 40 to 50 years. But the point being that we have seen tremendous conservatism maintained through the monarchy over some, you know, 1000 years since Athelstan and Alfred. I think it's interesting and perhaps even instructive that the the great moral issue for Prince Charles and no doubt Prince Harry and Prince William is the so-called climate crisis. I mean, that's the sky is falling. It's absolutely morally imperative that we drive Priuses or Teslas or choose to live off the land instead of using electricity, supposedly. Well, I just don't think you're going to see the monarchy continuing any kind of a conservative moral morality or a conservative perspective and, and rightly distinguishing between things that are significant and things that are insignificant, et cetera, et cetera, for uh, the, the rest of the monarchy. I, I don't even know if the monarchy will survive at this point. But what is the big takeaway from this, Adam? I think Romans 2, verse 4, very important as we see that you know God is preserving society and has preserved society and has blessed England and America. These are some of the most prosperous nations in the world, and they have been something of a blessing to other nations around the world as well over the last 200 years. And so there has been common grace there has been amazing amount of Christian influence upon the entire Western world that had ripple effects into other parts of the world as well. Romans 2 and verse 4, or do you presume on the kindness of God, the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here is a warning that indeed God has had mercy. Indeed, God has sustained culture over, say, hundreds and hundreds of years in the Western world. And yet the response seems to be a hardening of the heart and a rebellion against God with each additional administration, whether that be here in America or in the UK. Now, I want to end with this. I want an application in this distinction between an external moral culture and a true Christian faith. How does this play in terms of how we educate our children? I want to tie this in. There are some who say, well, whatever we get from a moralistic culture, that needs to be inculcated into our children. I would say not necessarily because I distinguish between that which is a common grace and that which is a special grace and the special revelation of God in uh, the discipleship of our children. We are to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Do we want to just recapitulate the moral writings of the 19th and 20th centuries for our children? The 19th and 20th centuries were the centuries of massive Christian apostasy. We, we have questions posed to our organization in relation to the kinds of materials we have chosen for our children's literature as all part of the Christian discipleship curriculum that we provide uh, parents uh, first through 12th grade now. All 12th grades provided for literature, most of science, and uh, worldview issues. So all of that available at generations.org. Kevin, I know that some have asked, why don't you use The Secret Garden? What's wrong with that book? Well, it's a nice moral story, you know. But I think what people don't understand is that you need to press into the worldview that undergirds the story. There may be something moral about the external virtues that are portrayed in the story or by the characters in the story. But what people don't understand is that the author, Francis Hodgson Burnett, 
she was an admirer of Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science teachings. Wow. Which included the rejection of medicine in favor of prayer and positive thinking. Now, Colin in the story, there's a, you know, the young boy Colin in the story, The Secret Garden, he says he wants to study the magic hmm. when he's older. Now, that ties into uh, Christian Science theology. The magic is hmm. Christian Science theology. Okay. Paradise is not just found in heaven, but also on earth, in nature, is, is the teaching of Christian science. And, and now this shift mirrors the, that made by Hodgson's Burnett's system of new thought, which held that divinity could be found in the landscape and all natural Ooh. living things. Of course, this was, Yikes. this was the romanticism or the, um, the transcendentalism of the day as well, taught by guys like Thoreau and Emerson. But Colin, you know, he, he likes the doxology. So there are references to, you know, the Christian symbols like the doxology, Hmm. praise God from whom all blessings flow and such. But the children's magic circle in the story is considered a prayer meeting or kind of temple. Hmm. And and Colin is described as some kind of a priest. And there's this chanting going on where it's supposed to call upon the healing properties of the magic to to heal him. And, And this, of course, is... Very much associated with the Christian science religion idea. Well, it's a cult. The idea is that you need to say these things over and over and think about them until they stay in your mind forever, quote, unquote. Now, again, I don't think the average parent is, is digging into the worldviews, undergirding some of this literature. They just think it's a nice story. Mm-hmm. They just think it's a nice moral story from the 19th century, and they wonder why it's not incorporated into our literature. And the reason is because it's not Christian. Right. It just doesn't have a Christian world and life view that undergirds it. And, and the author herself was not a Christian. Well, then others have asked us about Louisa May Alcott's moralistic writings. You know, why, why do we avoid Alcott's moralistic writings in our literature? One mom recommended to us the story Under the Lilacs by Louisa May Alcott. But if you, if you, you know, just read the story under the lilacs, you find that uh, there's a conversation between Miss Celia and Ben. Ben is saying, you know, I have this problem with swearing. And you know, I won't ever swear anymore. That, you know, do you really think if I said in meeting, I won't ever swear anymore that I wouldn't do it again? For that was his besetting sin. But Miss Celia responds with Alcott's theology. Here's what she says. I'm afraid we can't get rid of our faults quite so easily. I wish we could, but I do believe that if you keep saying that and trying to stop, you will cure the habit sooner than you think. Mm. Now, of course, that's us pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of moralistic theology that was dominant in the 19th century. And I think we just have to come back to that point that Louisa May Alcott did not have an evangelical biblical faith about her. Also, she's very strong in feminism throughout. She portrays the Maw as Pa's slave at one point and hints that it would be wiser to remain a spinster who is independent, quote-unquote, than to marry. Gloria and, and Stein, and watch out. A common, that was a common notion in the latter part of the 19th century as feminism take hold, takes hold of the entire Western world. So I think you know we need to go into this literature with our eyes wide open, realizing that the soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation taught by Alcott, is not our soteriology. That is, her worldview is not our worldview. Her theology is not our theology. What about Jane Austen? Well, Jane Austen is 
a bit more complicated in some ways. Jane Austen melds the classical virtues, that is the Greek humanist virtues that are idealized by you know, Aristotle and others. She, she melds the classical virtues to Christian virtues, but it's an, what I would call an unwieldy synthesis or an unhappy or an uncomfortable synthesis to, to try to you know, bring a, a Christian ethic and a Christian view of salvation and meld it into a classical view. Now, granted, that's what educational establishments have been attempting to do since Aquinas, and it has been a disaster. It has been the root of all apostasy in the Western world, as I see it. That is the very root of, of all apostasy in terms of what has happened in the church, what's happened mm. in schools, what's happened in the culture. It has always happened because of this attempt to synthesize Greek thought with Christian thought. Interesting. So the, the, what, what happens with Jane Austen is this balancing of virtues in the classical humanist approach. In Sense and Sensibility, she demonstrates a respect for classical virtues. She presents characters who are lacking in temperance and prudence, and, and, and she, she wants them to increase in wisdom through learning their mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. But she develops a strange theology that develops a, a form of redemption. Marianne resolves to change her life in what she calls my atonement to my God. So, so what happens in, in, in her soteriology or doctrine of salvation or doctrine of you know, moral transformation, she equates repentance— to atonement, which is, of course, one of the most horrific violations of a Christian soteriology or Christian doctrine of salvation that you could ever produce. It's a terrible thing. What would you say, Adam, if I said, well, as you repent, you're going to have to you know, atone for your own sins and redeem yourself? What would you say to that? Well, first of all, it's confusing. If I'm repenting of my sin, I can't save myself if I'm a sinner. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a problem. All you can yeah. do is turn to Christ, and Christ is our right. atonement. He is our Savior, and we need to be saved, and we cannot save ourselves. So you can't both repent and save yourself. It's, it's uh, antithetical to one another. So let me just wrap it up with this. Christ is our atonement. God gives us our definition of virtue and our definitions of how we achieve this life of virtues in Christ, by his righteousness, by faith, by his grace. And if these elements are not there, friends, this ungodly synthesis of a virtuous life as defined by the Greeks and a Christian life sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God and brought about by the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, these are radically different worldviews that you cannot possibly synthesize, and yet so much of this was attempted in the 19th century with people like Jane Austen. These attempts to synthesize humanism and Christianity always turn up badly, and, and of course, this is what constituted so much of the apostasy of the last two to three centuries anyway. So the problem with these moral books is that they can be even more dangerous than the definitively immoral books. Wow. Because our children will have a hard time discerning these issues. Obviously, our children would have a hard time discerning these issues because there are so many, you know, Christian school teachers who can't discern these issues either. I think there's a point at which children can read these books with discernment and care, 
But we have to be extremely careful in choosing our books. And what we do is we emphasize Christian books first and foremost before our children take advantage of any of the ungodly books, uh, those written by non-Christians or those who were not firmly rooted and grounded in a biblical theology, in a biblical worldview, our children should focus upon the compendium of Christian literature that's been produced by godly Christian leaders, teachers, writers over the last 2,000 years. And that's why we we measure on these uh, Christian authors. In, in the 12th grade, we introduce the Hawthorns, the Shakespeare's, and others, and uh, we teach children how to discern between what is good and evil and some of these deceptive and very difficult distinctions they need to draw between what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, in terms of the metaphysic and the ethic that is drawn out by these classical scholars. So we push that off to the 12th grade simply because I I don't believe students are ready for it for the most part until later on in their learning process, until they've really established themselves strongly in a Christian theology and a Christian world and life view. Then they should perhaps develop the ability to discern and then read some of these this other stuff. Yeah, but you need a good I would foundation. recommend reading the good stuff first before they get into some of this other stuff. You need a good foundation first, obviously. That's uh, that's our theology, or that's our perspective as we develop the Christian discipleship curriculum. And this is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 